And now, broadcasting live from the restaurant at the end of the universe, this is the history of the Atlantic world. sailors were called pirates, those men who had committed such odious and horrid crimes that their contemporaries called them sea monsters, hellhounds, opposers of all laws, humane and divine, and perhaps even children of the wicked one himself. Today, we will separate fact from myth to uncover this most beloved but elusive figure of the Atlantic world and answer a question. Who will go a-pirating? Now, to best answer that question, we probably need to define a few terms, because in most conversations regarding pirates, um, we tend to use a number of seemingly interchangeable words, privateers, buccaneers, and corsairs. Now, these are all terms used to describe various types of sea robbers, but we will be mainly be discussing pirates today. I promise we're going to get back to those other ones, but for now. Now, privateers and corsairs were both state-sanctioned robbers, and neither were quite like pirates because of this. Privateers are ships of war commissioned by one nation against another to target and seize enemy merchant vessels during times of war. Corsairs follow a similar vein and were commissioned by either Christian or Muslim rulers to target ships following the opposing faith. Buccaneers were originally French settlers living on Hispaniola and Tortuga that the British and French crown commissioned in the 17th century to break the Spanish hold on the Caribbean, which had dated to the Treaty of Tordesillas. Now, the buccaneers did engage in acts of piracy, but since they were state-sponsored, they were also privateers. Regardless, today we are not be focusing on either of any of those three groups. We're only really speaking of the pure pirates who operated specifically during the early 18th century, the golden age of piracy. Now, I'm not an expert on pirates yet. I began uh, this project uh, when I was a park ranger at Wormslow. I received an email from the Beaufort Historical Society, and they wanted to do a program um, about pirates in the Charleston area, which is why today's episode is going to be a little heavy. You might notice, you might think, boy, he's talking about Charleston a lot. Um, at any rate, 
I replied uh, that I would be happy to help. Um, you know, during my time studying history at uh, the University of Georgia, I was uh, obviously became obsessed with the early modern Atlantic world. And while I'm very comfortable discussing a number of topics from between the Columbus expedition uh, and 1888, um, I'd never previously studied pirates. And so I said to myself, uh, boy, I'd really love to go onto Amazon.com and buy a few books on pirates, and this seems like a perfect excuse to do so. Um, anyway, this is the result, and so I'm very grateful to have this opportunity to share this information about the pirates, uh, if you don't already know some of this. Now, unlike some of my, uh, well, all of my future episodes, um, this in particular is not research that I compiled myself. I am borrowing heavily from Marcus Redeker and Philip Leeson, uh, two uh, scholars who I think have done a fantastic job. Redeker's got a number of books uh, about uh, the 18th century uh, maritime world. Uh, Philip Leeson is actually an economist who wrote a book about the, uh, the economics of, of pirates. Um, now, well, with all of that said, uh, once I began to immerse myself into the maritime world of the early 18th century, I found out that it was going to be really difficult, difficult to separate a pirate who was operating in Charleston from one operating into the Caribbean, or in fact, for that matter, from pirates operating in the Indian Ocean. You see, pirates were born out of the greater maritime world. Uh, they were men, and as we will see sometimes, women, who were a part of what early American historian Gary Nash calls, quote, perhaps the most elusive social group in early American history, because they moved from port to port with greater frequency than other urban dwellers, shifted occupations, died young, and as the poorest members of the free white community, least often left behind traces of their lives on the tax lists or in land or probate records, unquote. Nash continues, though, and he argues that we cannot ignore those struggling, disease-prone, ill-paid, laboring men from consideration, because without them, the wheels of maritime commerce would not have turned. Now, I believe, as Marcus Redeker, a social historian, does, that the history of seafaring people must be more than just a chronicle of admirals, captains, and military battles at sea. You know, that's all fine, I guess, but, quote, the sailors' international life and labor require an international history, linking the pasts of Britain and America to broad intercultural histories of continental Europe the Mediterranean, Africa, and the East and West Indies. The seaman challenges us to adopt his almost nomadic mobility and to follow him from port to port around the globe, and his international existence beckons us to transcend the often artificial barriers to regional national history." Unquote. Now, I don't think there's any finer place to start looking for who would go a-pirating than on July 12, 1726. Because on that day, in the early afternoon, a certain William Fly was ascending the gallows of Boston to be hanged for piracy. Now, according to Cotton Mather, the attending minister, 
Fly had a smiling aspect and looked about him unconcerned for his fate. Now, Fly did become concerned, but just not in the way that anyone in attendance expected. Fly took hold of the proceedings and threw the hangman's rope over the beam, made it fast, and carefully inspected the noose that was soon to be around his own neck. He scowled at the hangman for not understanding his trade. But Fly, who was a sailor well-versed in knot tying, took mercy on the novice and offered to teach him how to tie a proper noose. With his own hands, he rectified manners. He said that he was not afraid to die, that he had wronged no man, and he was determined to die a brave fellow. Now, the authorities of Boston, they desired as part of the public spectacle for, for criminals such as William Fly to be penitent and to warn all in attendance to obey their parents and superiors, to not drink, swear, whore, or to profane the Lord's day. In contrast, William Fly did not ask for forgiveness. He did not praise the authorities. He did not reaffirm the values of Christianity. He instead issued a very different warning that all masters of vessels might take warning by the fate of the captain he had murdered, and to pay sailors their wages when due, and to treat them better, saying that their barbarity against the sailors turned so many into pirates. William Fly used his last words to admonish the crowds of Bostonians on the issue of bad usage which was committed by merchants and ship captains against sailors such as he. And thus William Fly was launched into the afterlife, threatening mutiny with his final words. Now, the sailors in attendance were likely somewhat less shocked by Fly's behavior than the local Bostonians who had gathered to witness the hanging. Long-distance sailors worked amongst a very diverse and globally cosmopolitan environment that was very different than the local, community-oriented lives of their peers on land. The sailor sailed from London to Europe, the Mediterranean, Africa, or the East Indies, or perhaps he might travel to Bristol or Glasgow or to Charleston or the Chesapeake, perhaps the Caribbean. New York or Boston. His work was as difficult and dangerous as it was far-reaching. He worked on the most advanced piece of technology of his time, the ocean-faring sea vessel, and so his way of talking was peculiar, fuel of technical terms, unusual syntax, and generous helpings of swearing. The dangerous work gave the sailor a distinctive appearance as well, foregoing the knee-high breeches of the landlubber for longer wider sailor slops that cut off just a few inches from the ankle. Covered in pitch to keep the cold and wet off the sailor, this led to the seaman gaining a nickname, often addressing themselves as Brother Tar. Sir John Felding of London commented that the parts of London frequented by sailors, to him it appeared that neighborhoods such as Rotherhithe and Wapping that a man would be apt to suspect he was in a foreign country. Yet in it all are perhaps the bravest and boldest fellows in the world. Another contemporary, Ned Ward, 
once came upon a group of seafaring men who, quote, looked as if they'd been hammered into an uncouth shape upon Vulcan's anvil, whose iron sides and metal-colored faces seemed to dare all weathers, spit fire at the frigid zone, and bid death defiance, unquote. A popular sailor's proverb during the 18th century was that those who would go to sea for pleasure would go to hell for pastime. A vast majority of seamen were very poor. Some of the younger sons of yeomen and poor farmers, others were men dispossessed by enclosure, who had migrated to the cities in search of work and found it on the docks. Some were picked up by press gangs and were forced to acquire the skills of maritime labor in the Royal Navy. Others were lured by high wages during times of war. Few had any other prospect. The average brother Tar went to sea in his late teens or early twenties, and during the first half of the 18th century, the average Tar was 27 years old. Once at sea, mariners experienced all manners of danger, disease, shipwrecks, disabling accidents, and premature death were things that could happen without warning and on a daily basis. They often received discipline from their officers that was brutal at best and sometimes murderous. In return, they received low wages in times of peace and fraud in payment was frequent. Sailors could expect little recompense from English maritime law, which, according to the historian Jesse Leminch, was designed in the 18th century to, quote, ensure a source of cheap, docile labor, unquote. And of course, they always had to contend with impressment from the Royal Navy. Now, the reason that so many sailors were required was because trade was undergoing the process of globalization during the early modern period. After 1492, the world was opened up. Bulk goods, tobacco and timber, slaves, sugar, these all required huge amounts of manual labor, and during the first half of the 18th century, fully a quarter of the population of London was involved in international commerce. Now, despite the necessity of manual labor, the sailor did not have even the same protections as, as his cargo. The Royal Exchange Assurance and the London Assurance Society both provided insurance to merchants against, quote, all hazard by sea, unquote, but this only applied to cargo, not for the lives of the brother Tars. The Royal Navy was no different. Although it was by far the largest and strongest arm of state power in England during the early 18th century, the pay was low and the working conditions were difficult. Few were willing to serve in the Royal Navy, and so the Admiralty Office did the job where the free market would not. Impressment of maritime workers was a key way that the Royal Navy filled the ranks. Between 1650 and 1750, England was involved in six major wars, and wages spiked during these times, but would fall dramatically during times of peace. Between 1689 and 1740, the average sailor's wage varied monthly by month uh, between peace and war, from 25 to 55 shillings or between $4,000 and $8,800 per year in today's money. And 
think about what it would be like if you signed up for a job uh, 17, 18 years old. You may not, may or may not be even able to, to read and write, let alone have a whole lot of knowledge about the world. Uh, in, in my opinion, a lot of these guys, what I'm getting at, they may or may not have been, quote, rational economic actors. Uh, and to say to sign up for a job and then two years later say peace with France comes, for example, and your wages get cut by more than 50%, uh, more than half. That would be rough. Anyway, now many maritime scholars place the golden age of piracy as specifically between the War of Spanish Secession, which ended in 1713, and the War of Jenkins' Ear, hello, which began in 1738. Sailors railed against the evil of impressment, which caused many to lose clothes and chest, as well as several months' pay. Others, less lucky, lost their lives. Many European sailors were drawn to the Atlantic trade specifically because the ports were considered healthier than those of Africa, and the trips far shorter than ships sailing the ports in India. Sailors coming into Charleston normally came either directly from London or increasingly during the 18th century from Africa as they transported the laborers who developed the Carolina economy. Ships entering Charleston were emptied of the cargoes. Enslaved Afri Africans, both alive and dead, sugar, molasses, and rum, and different varieties of manufactured goods, and left full of naval stores, deerskins, timber, and, most importantly, barrels of indigo and rice. Charleston's economy was dominated by the economy of slavery. She had virtually no seagoing vessels of her own. In 1740, only 25 ships called South Carolina home, and thus Charleston required 200 English ships to keep the wheels of the economy going. Although some sailors agreed with seaman Nathaniel Uring in 1718 when he called Charleston an unhealthy place, uh, many found that the vice admiralty court in Charleston made up for this. The judges there were known to occasionally give favorable rulings to sailors, bringing suits against captains or merchants, and so Carolina drew a fair number of sailors to report for that reason. By the start of the 18th century, the profession of sailing had become standardized. Every ship, from the merchant marine to the Royal Navy to the decks of a privateer, had a basic division of labor, consisting of captain, mate, carpenter, boatswain, gunner, quartermaster, perhaps a cook, and four or five able brother tars. A larger or more heavily manned ship included a second mate, a carpenter's mate, and four or five more common tars. The captain was complete master of the ship and possessed near absolute authority. According to the mutterings of his sailors, he ruled like a despot far too often. Working conditions on merchant and naval ships were brutal. Sailors complained frequently that ships were undermanned and would sometimes show their displeasure occasionally refusing to embark on voyages because not enough hands were on the ship. Especially during peacetime, though, this was dangerous for the sailor. Without war, there was far less impressment and, as such, far more sailors looking for work. Still, desertion was common. 
Many seamen deserted a vessel if conditions were not to their liking, hoping for competition between merchants to lead them to better pay or less work. But most often, desertion was used to escape a brutal captain or mate. Judicial records are full of mariners complaining that a captain's cruelty was the reason they left one boat for another. More than a few pirates cited being drubbed and beaten mercilessly by officers as the reason for their law-breaking. No small number of pirates complained of the, quote, too great severity their commanders have used both to their back and bellies, unquote. And the line about bellies is important, too. Um, there's a lot of money to be made on these long-distance ocean voyages, uh, most of it to the master of the vessel, who, who mind you, is almost never there. Uh, he is almost certainly a noble, uh, perhaps a merchant or a banker, who is hired this captain uh, to employ this crew to go out there. Uh, the captain would usually receive about 10% of any profit, and he could increase this, though, if he were less scrupulous with his morality. Say, a, a voyage to in India from England was six months, and if you just fed all the sailors just a little bit less every day for six months, well, that turns into quite a bit of profit, doesn't it? At any rate. Slave ships featured especially different, difficult conditions. One common saying among sailors who worked in the slave trade was especially telling. Quote, there was a pox above board, the plague between the decks, hell in the forecastle, and the devil at the helm. Unquote. Nearly every early 18th century pirate had worked previously in the merchant shipping industry before going on the account. Now, the nature <clears throat> of the work did not change for one who exchanged a life of legal trade for illegal plunder. In either occupation, the same hard labor had to be performed, but among pirates, the intensity of labor, labor de decreased dramatically. An average 200-ton ship might contain 13 to 17 hands on average. In comparison, a pirate ship of equivalent size on average had 70 or 80 hands. Becoming a pirate meant a significantly easier life for a sailor on a day-to-day -day basis. As pirate Joseph Mansfeld said in 1722, quote, the love of drink and the lazy life were bigger motivators for him than gold. Despite Mansfeld's claim, Desire for greater pay certainly played a greater played a role for most sailors desiring to become pirates. Pirates were compensated far more than seamen in the Merchant Marine or Royal Navy. On a legitimate sailing vessel, five or six pay slots existed for 15 sailors. In contrast, a pirate ship had three or four pay stations for 70 or 80 sailors. Even more astonishing, pirates got rid of the wage. Pirate crews operated as equal partners, taking shares instead of wages. The difference in pay between sailor in the merchant marine and sailor on a pirate ship could be astonishing. Although illegal and dangerous, piracy paid. 
Captain John Bowen's crew plundered a prize which yielded them 500 pounds per man. Captain Thomas White's crew retired to Madagascar after marauding such that each pirate was 1,200 pounds richer from plunder. Christopher Condit's crew seized a prize that earned each pirate 3,000 pounds in 1720, and just a year later, John Taylor and Oliver Labouche uh, teamed up and earned an astonishing 4,000 pounds per each crew member from a single attack. Even John Evans' crew of only 30 pirates received 300 pounds per pirate in a matter of months on the account. Sailors toiling on a merchant vessel, in contrast, averaged a pay of roughly 25 pounds per year. According to economist Peter Leeson, and author of The Invisible Hook, sailors who chose in legitimate employment, quote, were schlubs, unquote. Bartholomew Roberts seems to agree with Leeson when he spoke to his crew thusly. In an honest service, there is thin commons, low wages, and hard labor. In this, plenty and satiety, pleasure and ease, liberty and power. And who would not balance creditor on this side, when all the hazard that is run for it, at worst, is only a sour look or two at choking? No, a merry life and a short one shall be my motto. Pirates even developed a social security system. Pirate Jeremiah Higgins claimed he was given 14 gold pistoles, 7.5 ounces of gold dust, 82 pieces of 8, and 17 ounces of silver bullion by reason of being wounded among the pirate crew he sailed with. The one-armed John Fenn even became captain. So too did John Taylor, who was lame by the hands. Perhaps the most dramatic instance of pirate social security was Blackbeard's famous blockade of Charleston Harbor, which was done to secure needed medicines for his crew, which had been laid low by venereal disease. A merry life indeed. Now, between 1716 and 1726, about 5,000 pirates roamed the seas of the world. Now, broken down, it appears roughly 1,800 to 2,400 uh, Anglo-American pirates, this is, mind you, plied the seas between 1716 and 1718. 1,500 to 2,000 between 1719 and 1722. 1,000 to 1,500 between 1723 and 26, and from there declining to around 200. Now, in contrast, the most powerful navy in the world, the British Royal Navy, employed an average of 13,000 men per year during this era. Now, direct comparisons are kind of impossible because there is such a gap between the modern uh, United States Navy and, and, and what else is going on. But think about that. I want you to think about what if there were a naval force in this world a tenth the size of the U.S. Navy comprised almost entirely of the most experienced sailors 
in the world. Um, and if they were, I mean, if these guys had aircraft carriers, I mean, good grief. That's, uh, you're talking about a, a significant uh, naval power. Now, roughly one in five men who became pirates did so as a result of mutiny. Especially cruel captains might be killed or marooned, especially if the gunner sided with the brother's tar who had complaints against the captain. Now, sometimes after having mutinied, crews voted to become pirates. But most sailors who turned pirate did so if a ship of pirates overtook the ship they worked on. In 1718, Colonel Benjamin Bennett wrote to the Council of Trade and Plantations, complaining that he feared, quote, they would soon multiply, the pirates that is, for so many are willing to join them when taken, unquote. <clears throat> now, most seamen who became pirates did so willingly, and under a veneer of false impressment. Impressment onto a pirate ship was often just a show, unlike the impressment practiced by the Navy. Many who wished to become pirates asked or paid fellow sailors to report them at the nearest port as having been captured by pirates. That way, later, if the pirate was apprehended, there was evidence that that sailor could point to. Look, I've been captured. Not guilty. <laughs> now, the majority of pirates were of British descent. According to Redeker, 47.4% were connected to either England, Scotland, Ireland, or Wales. Now, roughly a third of this figure was connected to Greater London specifically, uh, and the, especially the seafaring neighborhoods of Wapping, Stepney, Shadwell, Rotherhithe. Um, my apologies. I, I apologize. If I got any of those wrong. Uh, nearly 1 in 10 pirates was Irish, 1 in 14 Scottish, and 1 in 25 was Welsh. Roughly 25% of all pirates were broadly uh, American. That is, they hailed from either North America or the West Indies. Now, according to official British records, only 6.9% of pirates were foreign, but this number appears to be uh, very misleading, judging by what we do know of some pirate crews. Uh, Sam Bellamy's crew in 1717 contained British, French, Dutch, Spanish, Swedish, Native American, African American, and two dozen Africans, recently liberated from a slave ship. Benjamin Evans' crew was English, French, Spanish, Dutch, and African. Pirate James Barrow saw, sang hymns in French and Spanish out of his Dutch hymnal to the pirates aboard his ship. Now, most fully hidden to us are the hundreds of pirates of African descent who were on pirate ships. This is in large part because colonial officials often refused to give trials to black pirates, preferring instead to sell them into slavery uh, for profit instead of hanging them. Still, we do know that in 1718, 60 of Blackbeard's crew was black. Captain William Lewis hosted 40 black sailors out of his crew of 80, now, many blacks who served aboard pirate ships were probably slaves, but many were also free men. Of the 700 pirates known to have operated in the Caribbean between the years 1717 and 1725, at least 20% were black. For pirates of African descent, similarly to the poor whites who went on the account, a life under the Jolly Roger meant more food and more money than a life led under the thumb of the law. 
The pirate ship was a multi-ethnic place. It was largely single-gendered. The reasons why are not uh, fully understood, I don't think, by scholars at the present, but in part, uh, the rigors of sea life probably helps to explain the great disparity of the sexes. Not all men can physically handle the workload aboard a large seafaring vessel at this time, let alone many women. Um, in addition to this, though, women were seen as sources of bad luck aboard ships and, um, at worst, potential sources of conflict. Um, still, four examples of women pirates during the golden age of piracy are known. Now, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed went on to have infamous careers, both becoming famous for sometimes rigging themselves in men's clothing. Um, in, in addition, uh, there's two lesser-known examples of women pirates who were tried for piracy in Virginia. Mary Har Harley was tried with three men in 1726. Uh, she was released, whereas the men were hanged. Mary Cricket, though, in 1728 was hanged herself, along with six other men. Now, in a remarkable rebuke of the hierarchy of the maritime world, pirate crews elected their captains, and the office had many restrictions. In fact, the captain was only in power while chasing a ship, being chased, or in battle. And if a crew didn't like the way a captain governed the ship, they could just vote him right out of office. Captain Benjamin Hornigold's multi-ethnic but most, mostly English crew overthrew him because he refused to take plunder from English vessels. Christopher Moody was removed from his crew for being too gentlemanlike in demeanor. Captain Charles Vane was called a coward by his crew and removed from power. Now, between attacking vessels, pirate crews decided where the pirate ship went next by voting. Edward England wanted to sail his crew to Portuguese Goa, and I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, but his crew met in council, and they did not agree to it. So they did not sail west, but continued southward. One captured captain, commenting about the democratic leanings of his pirate captors, noted that, quote, there was so little governance and subordination that they are, on occasion, all captains, all leaders, unquote. The governance on pirate ships was bicameral. The quartermaster was in charge of rationing foodstuffs and alcohol, as well as distributing loot, and these were all responsibilities of the captain on naval and merchant ships. Now, like the captain, the quartermaster was elected, and like the captain, he could be thrown from office if the crew did not like the way he rationed food or booze, or if he was caught stealing. As was the case with David Simpson, quartermaster on Black Bart Bartholomew Roberts' ship, the crew turned him out for having grown vicious. Now, all of these rules were governed by written pirate codes in most cases. Pirate democracy operated more than a half century before the Continental Congress approved the Declaration of Independence, mind you. Now, the pirate codes of John Gow, uh, George Lowe and George Lothar, um, Bartholomew Roberts, um, these have survived. And, uh, and so Captain John Phillips, too. Um, and if you want extra credit, I highly recommend pausing uh, the, the podcast now to take a look at these documents. Uh, but before you do, uh, it's important to note that the pirates themselves came up with these laws. Uh, no outside force brought democracy to the pirates. 
And I'd also like to point out that many of the laws are similar between those constitutions as well. Uh, and, and Bartholomew Roberts, uh, the code there, even enshrined into law that all crew members would get to vote. Um, and I, I think all of that is quite remarkable. Um, well, anyway, uh, it, it, now that you're back from getting your extra credit, um, another reason uh, for engaging in piracy was revenge. Pirate Philip Lyne carried this vengeance perhaps the farthest. He confessed to having killed 37 masters of vessels. Barbaric ship captains could expect similarly barbaric treatment if captured by pirates. Pirate John Phillips ranted and raved at a merchant he had captured, abusing him, calling him a supercargo son of a bitch as he starved the men, and that it was dogs as he that put men a-pirating. The very names of numerous pirate ships provide evidence of the revenge motivator. Blackbeard's ship was Queen Anne's revenge. Steed Bonnet's was the revenge. John Cole's New York Revenge's Revenge and William Fly's Fame's Revenge. Particularly unlucky ship captains might even find themselves face to face with pirates they had formerly commanded. When Edward England's ship captured the vessel of Captain Skinner, whom England had formerly served as boatswain, he addressed his former master. Captain Skinner, is that you? Why, you're the only man I've ever wished to see. I am much in your debt, and now I shall pay you in your own coin. Skinner was then tied to the mast, pelted with glass bottles which cut him in a sad manner, after which he was whipped until the men of the ship were tired. Later, England finally finished Skinner off, shooting him through the head. In contrast, Captain William Snellgrave was spared because of his good usage towards his crew. When overtaken by Thomas Crookland's crew of pirates at the mouth of the Sierra Leone River, Snellgrave ordered his crew to arms. The pirate quartermaster was enraged by the command and began beating Snellgrave severely. Snellgrave's crew saved his life, though, and responded, For God's sake, don't kill our captain. We were never with a better man. The quartermaster replied that Snellgrave's life was safe as long as none of his crew would testify against him. None did, and so his life was spared. Snellgrave was returned to London, and even though he was a kind captain, Eleven of his sailors took up the account and became pirates themselves. Now, pirates who were captured faced the full force of the law. Murder was not a necessary charge to be hanged for piracy. Pirates were declared hostis humani genarsis, Latin for enemies of all mankind, by South Carolina judge Nicholas Trott at the trial of Steed Bonnet and 33 of his crew. The men were denied access to clergy, and at their sentencing, Trot declared that he thought, quote, No further good or benefit can be expected from you but by the example of your death. Unquote. 
In all, at least 400 and probably as many as five or 600 pirates were hanged during the decade of 1716 and 1726. As such, pirates and the legal system were engaged in a perpetual system of terrorization against one another. Now, the pirates had a very important weapon at their disposal. Um, well, a few. One was joining forces, and pirate crews often did this uh, later when we finally reach the 1700s, um, and I get back into, into pirates. We'll, we'll talk more about how they're connected and as we get into their individual adventures, I should say. Um, uh, but, but, but they often did join forces to, to take larger convoys of ships and, and more, more powerful ships and crews. Now, more important than that, though, perhaps, was the Jolly Roger. The mere sight of the pirate's flag terrified seafaring men. Its purpose was actually to reduce violence, since in this capacity, if a ship surrendered upon the raising of the Jolly Roger, the pirate crew would suffer no casualties taking her prize. No fewer than 2,500 men sailed under one form of Jolly Roger or another, and its widespread adoption indicates really an advanced state of group identification amongst differing pirate ships. The exact designs varied from ship to ship, uh, some containing the death's head, uh, most contained, though, a full-figured skeleton. Other recurring items were weapons and hourglass, and together, these three figures represented death, violence, and limited time. And the symbols were double-edged, for the victims of pirates, they represented the limited time that they had to surrender before being offered no quarter. For the pirates themselves, the Jolly Roger represented the struggle against merchants, captains, and officials, and even against death itself. And more somberly, the Roger spoke to the limited time the pirate had before his happy life became a short one. Pirates had a number of other tools to aid in the capture of prey. Uh, often a pirate ship flew a flag other than the Jolly Roger, flying appropriate colors depending on where they were and where they were sailing to to try to trick other vessels into letting them get closer. Uh, they also constructed canvas covers, uh, colored to blend in with the ship's hull, uh, which were used to hide pirate port guns, uh, or excuse me, gun ports until they were within range. And merchants, in contrast, actually often painted fake gun ports and, and used wooden dummy guns to appear stronger than they were. Uh, pirates often put chicken coops and other cargo on their decks to look more like the merchant ships they were pretending to be. And to disguise their speed, they sometimes tied barrels together and threw them over the ship's stern um, and uh, to make them slow down, like the Jaws movie, I guess. And they'd, when they'd get closer, they'd cut them quickly to, to gain a quick boost of speed, which uh, would often surprise uh, their prey. Now, Captain Charles Johnson claimed that during the decade in question, pirates captured more vessels and did greater damage to trade than had been done by the combined naval and privateering campaigns undertaken by France and Spain combined during the War of Spanish Secession. Historian Ralph Davis has backed this up, 
concluding that England lost roughly 2,000 vessels during the war, but captured a number greater than or equal to that number. In comparison, some pirate captains experienced draw-dropping success. Between 1719 and 1722, the crew of Bartholomew Roberts took over 400 ships alone. Edward Lowe captured over 140. Blackbeard, perhaps 100. Sam Bellamy took 50 ships before being killed in a storm. Edward England and Charles Bain also captured more than 50 ships each. Charles Harris took 45. Francis Spriggs, 40. James Phillips, 34. George Lothar, 33. Richard Holland, 25. The remaining 70 known pirate captains took an average of 20 ships each, according to Marcus Redeker. The total is 2,400 ships captured and plundered from English merchants. The economic figures are telling. British shipping phases of British shipping <clears throat> experienced a period of massive growth in the preceding the era, but between 1715 and 1728, England experienced zero growth in its shipping. The British government made an increasingly concerted effort to destroy the growing threat to its supremacy on the high seas during the course of the 1720s, to the extent that piracy was largely eliminated by 1726. Now, the Crown had twice offered pardons to pirates, uh, who would take them in 1717 and again in 1718, but the pirates often just went right back to being pirates. And so this policy wasn't very effective, and the Crown stopped it. In 1721, they took they went a step farther. Uh, the act for the suppression of piracy was notable in that it specifically spelled out that it was active in the Americas, the Caribbean, and Africa. It set up penalties for merchant ships who failed to fight against pirates, docking pay for those who surrendered peacefully. The plantation economy led to increasingly larger amounts of capital accrual in the Caribbean and in Carolina, which meant more enemies for pirates on the other side of the Atlantic as well, since it was often the planter sugar, rice, and slaves being captured by the sea bandits. Finally, in 1722, the king announced that per persons injured fighting the pirates shall be provided for as if they were actually in service to the crown. Most ships captured by pirates were involved in the Middle Passage, and a disruption of this all-important commerce would not be tolerated. The legal and military campaign against the pirates in the 1720s was accompanied by incredible amounts of propaganda. In media, pirates were wild and savage beasts, like a menacing lion which everyone should destroy for the public interest. Instances of violence were usually described in newspapers in lurid detail that sought to drive public opinion squarely against the pirates. And over time, this has served to blur the public perception of who the pirates during the Golden Age really were. The pirates were hard men, with hard jobs, living in a hard age. They made choices that took them down violent roads. And some did so for love of money, others to support families. Still others became pirates for freedom, be it from hard work, the judicial system, cruel masters and captains, or the institution of slavery. 
Many pirates died very differently than William Fly did, who retied his own noose and tasked the crowd with treating sailors better. Instead, they were penitent and humble before they died. But many others were just as fearless as Fly. Many crews pledged that they would rather blow up than be taken. Captain Charles Harris and his crew always kept a barrel of powder ready for if they were taken. The crew of Black Bart Roberts tried to make good on such a promise. In a prolonged firefight, Captain Roberts was struck in the throat with grapeshot and killed. His crew threw him overboard. Then, a dozen or so of the crew went to light the barrel of the powder to, quote, all merrily go to hell together. They gathered around the magazine and the steerage and Pirate John Morris fired an incendiary shot. But the powder was depleted from the long engagement. The ship did not blow up, although Morris did manage to kill himself and two of his comrades, so it wasn't a total loss. The captured merchant captain, William Snellgrave, discovered just how fearless pirates were towards death itself when he was asked by a nameless pirate one day, whether Snowgrave was afraid of going to the devil by a great shot. Snowgrave didn't know what to say. The pirate declared his own hope, that he should be sent to hell one of these days by a cannonball. Snowgrave replied weakly, I hope that will not be my road. Pirates seemed to embrace death possibly as a final act of rebellion, and for these most rebellious of individuals, some even actually embraced Lucifer, the most rebellious of angels. Blackbeard actively cultivated an image of himself as Satan, lighting slow-burning matches and placing them round his ears so that wisps of smoke curled around his face, accompanied by an eerie glow at night. When a certain William Bell of Charleston happened upon Teach late at night and asked him, who he was, and from whence he came, Teach replied, I've come from hell, and I will carry you back there presently. William Fly taunted Cotton Mather, saying that he wished all the devils of hell would come and fly away with the ship in which he was captured. Captain John Phillips remarked to a bystander upon spying a prize in the distance that he wanted to capture that vessel just long enough to sail her to hell. For many sailors, piracy was an effort, I think, to escape a death trap. The men who sailed with Edward Condit said that, quote, they had got done, they had got enough and done their business, and that they need not go out to sea again as long as they ever live. George Lothar spoke for all of the sailors after the successful mutiny aboard a Royal African Company ship on which they served, stating, It was not their business to starve or be made slaves. Contemplating, contemplating mutiny in 1719, Brother Tar Robert Sparks exclaimed to his fellow Tars that they had better be dead than live in misery, and William Mething agreed. Damn it! It was better than to be hanged than to live so. When pirate Stephen Smith 
wrote to a royal official requesting a pardon. He wrote that he was, quote, forced to go a-pirating to get a living, which is very much against my will, unquote. Perhaps <clears throat> William Scott, a member of Steed Bonnet's crew, said it best. He gave a simple, quiet self-defense at his trial for piracy in Charleston in 1718. When asked what possible reason he could have had for going on the account with Bonnet, Scott replied, what I did was to keep me from perishing. Piracy was perhaps a contradictory way for these poor brothers Tar to, escape, to es attempt to escape a difficult life. Such is man, such is life. Pirates of the Golden Age were criminals, and many committed violent offenses in addition to their sea robbery. But so too did the pirates create constitutions to fight authority. They democratically elected officials and worked to create a more egalitarian social economy. We should not view them with rose-colored lenses, but the pirates appear in many ways more hero than villain. Their struggle was not completely different than the struggle that occurred two generations later on the North American mainland and which resulted in the independence of the 13 colonies. Marcus Redeker believes that since the Golden Age pirates led rebellious lives, that we should remember them for as long as there are people in this world worth rebelling against. Well, Marcus, I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you for joining us. Hey, fellow pirates, come and listen what I say. The captain is a tyrant and I know long of taking orders from the madman in command so let's drop him on an island and leave him in the sand cause it's a mutiny it's a mutiny it's a mutiny and now we're taking over the ship it's a mutiny it's a mutiny it's a mutiny and now we're taking over the ship happening here you're no longer in control and we're drinking up your beer this is now a democratic eagerly tearing pirate ship so enjoy your trip because it's a mutiny it's a mutiny this is a mutiny and now we're taking over the ship it's a mutiny it's a mutiny it's a mutiny and now we're taking over the ship